Good afternoon and welcome to the show. John Jang and I, Raji Sohal, are your co-hosts today. Three days in a row, actually, John Jang. <laughs> is, yeah. it, is it enough? Is it too much? We'll have to see. Yeah, I think it's the perfect amount. Okay, I'm going to go with that yeah. too. We've got a lot to cover in the next three hours. And we are looking at how small businesses are going to survive through the latest restrictions. We've heard that the province will be offering some temporary supports. But is it enough? At a press conference this morning, Minister of Economic Recovery, Ravi Kalan said that businesses are going to get their money pretty quickly. Let's take a, take a listen to uh, what else he said. Today, I'm pleased to announce that the government of British Columbia is establishing the COVID-19 closure relief grant. This new grant will be available for businesses that have been ordered closed by the recent public health order. Relief grants will be between $1,000 and $10,000 in one-time funding that will be provided to eligible businesses based on their number of employees, following the similar formula that we used for the previous Circuit Breaker Relief Grant Program, which supported businesses in spring 2021. We uh, will be launching the program in early January. Businesses that have already come through the system, for example, just gyms alone, about 1,100 of them have already accessed uh, either the small and medium-sized grant program or the circuit breaker program. Uh, They will be streamlined uh, because we've got a lot of their information, so they'll be able to get money much quicker uh, than any previous program that we've had. So that's Minister Ravi Kalan talking about a relief program that's going to start in early 2022 to help out some of those small and independent businesses. Well, as new public health orders have announced temporary restrictions, including shutting down gyms, dance studios, along with bars and nightclubs, some of these places, they're very small. They're independent, and it's already a struggle for them to survive. Here to talk about the circuit breaker funding for small businesses is Annie Dormuth. She's Director of Provincial Affairs for BC and Alberta Independent business. Good afternoon, Annie. Good afternoon to you guys. Thank you so much for joining uh, John and I and our listeners uh, this afternoon. You heard the job minister's press conference today uh, where the government has said that they'll step up to offer $10,000 in direct funding to recently closed businesses. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the new closure relief grant? Well, definitely any direct funding to small business owners right now is very much appreciated, and we do appreciate and recognize the uh, BC government has quickly acted on this. Um, Like I said, there are some positives in this announcement in the sense that it's not alone. It is a direct cash injection to small businesses, which will be helpful. However, you know, I can't help notice, and I I heard at the short economic update prior to this segment, you know, about businesses slowly getting back on their feet in the late fall here. And however, they are being dealt a very severe blow right now. We're coming up to nearly two years of ongoing swings of restrictions and closures. And although this funding is definitely going to be, you know, helpful, it is definitely not going to be the solution or completely make these businesses whole again. Um, It's not going to come close to, you know, recovering or, you know, subsidizing all of the revenue losses, for example, the fitness and events industries are going to be going through um, in the next little while here with a complete closure. Um, and that is really important to recognize that, um, you know, we're, we're coming up to nearly two years of this. Um, only 30, not even 40 percent of BC small businesses are back to making normal sales. And further to that, 35 percent are saying that they're losing money every day that they are open right now. 
Annie, you mentioned there $10,000 not being necessarily enough. On some people's ears, that's falling as, oh, wow, $10,000, that's a lot. But for a small business owner, what is a better number? What kind of figure would you like to have heard? Well, I don't think there is an exact figure that would, you know, I think what really a small business needs, and unfortunately that's just simply not going to be the case, is to open, open with certainty and get back to normal operations, which of course is just not happening right now. So of course, any type of provincial or even federal government relief um, is going to help them hopefully get to the other side of it. But when, when it comes to the end of the day, two years, again, two years of ongoing restrictions, revenue losses and, and ongoing kind of swings of closures um, is definitely, you know, this funding will hopefully make them, will allow them to get through the other side. But economic recovery is still very much in question, especially when you take into consideration that the average BC small business is carrying $129,000 worth of COVID-19 related debt. Again, that's nearly pretty much $130,000 worth of debt right now. Annie, let's talk about the psychological side of this. The announcement of the restrictions was almost like a panic button being hit. I saw small business owners posting things like, I have no words, or what more can be said. Just this uh, sense of feeling really deflated. At the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed like people were very scared, and that feeling has shifted now. What do you think most small business owners are feeling these days? Oh my goodness, just not a lot of confidence and optimism. Uh, we saw a little bit of that in the late fall and kind of throughout the summer here as we were kind of getting over the Delta wave. And again, businesses were being able to um, to operate and, you know, there was the hope of vaccines that this wouldn't happen again. I would have to say all of that, you know, has been pulled underneath them right now. Um, we're hearing such, you know, stories of business owners, you know, struggling with this struggling with the uncertainty. There was just a story in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan um, a couple weeks ago of a very beloved um, local business owner um, taking her own life, actually, because she just couldn't take it anymore. And her family decided to come out to the media, uh, be honest with the situation, and did say a large large part of it was simply she couldn't take on, you know, the, the uncertainty and, and the restrictions, you know, that her business was having right now. And that is sadly, you know, what we are hearing from business owners. That is a very extreme case. But it's really important as you go to these local businesses, um, even maybe your local gym thinking about buying, a, you know, maybe an extension of a membership or not outright canceling your membership. All of that will help them right now. And it's really important to be to be kind to them as well, um, especially in the restaurant industry right now. If you're unhappy that you can't get a table, um, that's not the business owner's fault. They're following the rules right now. And of course, I just, you know, I know Bonnie Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry says that. But it's really important to always be kind to one another during these very difficult times. Hey, I really appreciate that message. We need to hear it, not just uh, because of the season, but because of what people are going through. Thank you so much, Annie. Oh, you're very welcome. Always great to be on the show. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the show. John Jang, Raji Sohal, we are your co-hosts today, filling in for Jill Bennett. And while small businesses have been through a bit of a roller coaster these days with uh, closures and restrictions and whatnot, but some new relief is coming their way, at least for businesses that were ordered to close. Isn't that right, John? Yeah, that's right. So restaurants that face those capacity limits won't be eligible for this new program as announced by Minister Kalon earlier this morning. But those that did close, including 
gyms, fitness centers, uh, dance centers, bars, lounges, nightclubs, even event venues that actually are no longer able to hold those in-person events, all eligible to receive anywhere between one and $10,000. That'll depend on the amount of employees they actually have. So uh, according to the minister as well, applications for this process will begin in January 2022 and end sometime in February. But it's good to know for a lot of these businesses that support is on the way. That there's some support at least, yes. And now joining us on the line to talk about how this affects her business is Miru Dalwala. She's co-owner of Vidge's Restaurant. Good afternoon, Miru. Hello, how are you? Great. And uh, before I get to how you are doing, oh my goodness, it's just been quite a time for small businesses. Probably not that easy. How's it going? Um, You know, it's the second time around for us. Because last New Year's, last Christmas, it was our very first time going. It was all brand new emotionally, strategically, business-wise. In a way, we've done it before. So it's not like coming, like, it's not like, last year was like a punch coming from behind and you weren't prepared for it. Whereas now it's like, okay, we know we're going to be punched because of COVID-19. Okay, so you've kind of been bracing yourself. So when you heard about the yeah, new restrictions, yeah, right. It's like it didn't come as a I mean, at least for uh, me and Vikram, it didn't come as that big of a shock or a surprise. A pain, absolutely. Um, stress, absolutely. Um, you know, again, we're going to see how it pans out with the you know limited capacities. Are we going to have to lay off staff? Hopefully, we're going to be able to retain our staff, and that's going to depend on really how comfortable customers are going to be feel about going out right now. Yeah. Even with the distancing, even with the dividers and everything, uh, you know, people, some, you know, you hear some people are getting just sick and tired of all these lockdowns and shutdowns and everything. And others are actually quite frightened with Omicron. Yeah. How do you expect that Vidges is going to be affected? So, so far, our reservations have not changed very much. We're very fortunate in the sense that we have a private dining room upstairs and so we can open that up okay. with distance seating. So we're a little bit more fortunate you know, for one thing that does help us as a local business is we are a bigger sized restaurant. So we can we can distance. It's the smaller restaurants that I'm really concerned about. Yeah. Hey, Miru, how are your staff doing? Uh, you know, it, it has been an absolute roller coaster. But I would say as a plus side, we're the same. You know, the core staff is the same and we've just come through it stronger. But the minus side is it, it is just every day is stressful and customers are you know sometimes not responding well they're bringing their stress sometimes as well to a restaurant uh miru uh, i do appreciate you giving us some time uh, people will be curious have you had any incidents where contact tracers have had to call you at the restaurant because maybe there was a link there at all since the beginning of the pandemic no thank goodness no we have not had that problem we have had a little bit of a problem with people trying to sneak into the restaurant hmm. without showing their IDs, and then we have to chase them to the table. We've had that happen before, uh, but we have not had any issues with contract tracing, no. It, that- it, and we're always on edge. So, um, you know, we're always on edge, like, oh, my goodness, you know, our, our, you know is, is our restaurant going to become a point of contact for COVID-19? It's, it, it's uh, again, you know, we're hitting two years now, and um, – I'm beginning as a business person and as a citizen of Vancouver and British Columbia and Hmm. Canada, I'm beginning to feel like maybe we can't treat this virus like, okay, it's going to be done in three months. Okay, it's going to be done in six months. Maybe we need to now start planning in terms of long term um, and putting, you know, putting things in place just so that we just don't constantly feel like we're shifting gears all the time and just more long term planning.
It sounds like you've given that some thought, Miro. Do you have any ideas on what we should be doing long term? Well, um, you know, I think obviously restaurants are going to have to constantly be ready just on a with a snap of a finger to change capacity, seating capacities. That's just going to have to be an easy no-brainer. And if that's just going to keep happening, you know what, we have to be prepared for that. It's just really small businesses that I, I don't know what to do as far, because the small businesses really are what make our culture happen, right, in the city. Uh, one of the things I think we're trying to get a gauge of right now, Miru, is if you would recommend someone who's maybe an entrepreneur, if you would even recommend getting into this particular industry right now, because it feels like it's such a difficult time for a lot of different business owners, whether it's big or small restaurants. Well, you know, you ask a question, and I'll tell you, but I actually, I'm about to launch a side business. I'm not promoting it right now, but mm-hmm. uh, in terms of entrepreneurship, right, I'm launching a side business on the 28th of December. It's a baby food company, an online baby food company with pickup at the restaurant. And so, um, in a way, I feel like right now, just so that we keep our potential entrepreneurs, existing entrepreneurs, instead of getting sad and depressed and losing hope and thinking, oh, my gosh, there is no future for me. Um, I think in a way, this is also an opportunity to, like, open up every single nook and cranny, every single nook and cranny of our entrepreneurial brains to figure out, okay, how can we do this? Because what if this is here to stay? It's a very good point, Mira. We can't stop living, right? We just, we, we, I feel like it's time for us to shift gears instead of saying, okay, one last time, let's do a lockdown. One last time. Instead of this whole one last time, maybe we've just got to shift gears and maybe a group of entrepreneurs do need to get together and figure out how are we going to do this? Small businesses, mid-level businesses and larger businesses. It's interesting. It's a good point, Miro. Thank you so much for being with us this uh, afternoon. Thank you. Thanks a lot. 980CKNW, John Jang and myself, Raji Sohal, are your hosts today. And I know a lot of folks have some, shall we say strong words for the government these days. Well, some people are angry that gyms are shut down, but others are on the other complete opposite side of the spectrum saying, spectrum saying uh, why is transit still running and why are buses still going? Why are seniors even leaving their house at all? And that's because those people say they want to see as many safety measures in place. My next guest is a retired ER physician. She's also a member of the Protect Our Province group, and her name is Dr. Lynn Filiatro. Welcome to the show, Dr. Filiatro. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today. Well, let's start with your concerns with where BC currently sits. When you look at the case count, what is your assessment of the data? Well, you have to remember that uh, the case counts are not an accurate reflection in BC. We've always been under testing, and now with the long waits uh, that we are seeing at PCR test sites, um, that undercounting may also be worse. As what we've heard is that people, uh, some people are handed out um, rapid antigen tests. So how these will be captured remains to be seen. So so we don't have a good idea right now what is our case count. We know it's increasing, but I don't think the last number we saw is accurate by all means. Okay, so you mentioned uh, testing is not providing a full picture. Can you say some more about that? Well, as you know, um, 
even with the Delta wave in September, people were having a hard time accessing uh, testing sites. Um, and right now, I see wait times of four and a half, six hours, depending uh, where people go. And some people are even being turned away. So we're not going to get the full scope of uh, what our exact uh, uh, numbers of positive tests are in BC. And as you can well imagine, with Omicron now spreading um, much more rapidly, at some point, our testing capacity is exceeded. And I think that's what's starting to happen now. I know you've taken a strong position with the province. You actually penned a letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix uh, to the health Mm -hmm. officials. What's the gist of what you said to them? Well, we're at the point right now where in BC, um, it seems we're always caught on a back foot. And um, if you remember the last... uh, uh, last week, last Tuesday, uh, we were getting a presentation from the government, and I think they were, you know, uh, saying goodbye and you're going to see us in a week's time. And it's thanks to the media like you and other groups putting pressure that we ended up having uh, um, more uh, press, re- not press release, but press briefings. So, so again, we're on the back foot. Um, Omicron is here, and it's rapidly spreading. And uh, we also know that it's evading uh, two-dose vaccination. And um, because of that, our numbers are going to explode. So what we were asking is that we either have a circuit breaker or a um, lockdown, whatever you want to call it. Um, Because right now what's going to happen and what we're seeing already happening in Quebec is um, our healthcare workers and our essential workers will be at risk of being infected. And that also uh, goes for a lot of other businesses. Kieran Moore in Ontario, the chief medical health officer, suggested that maybe 20 to 30% of um, healthcare workers would, would get infected. So right now, our strategy should be to protect our healthcare and our essential worker. And so in addition to a lockdown or circuit breaker, our strategy would be to roll out, in addition to the current rollout, um, uh, expand vaccine access for all essential worker and especially healthcare worker and long-term care uh, worker in order to protect them. Because what happens when you go to the hospital and you have staff that are on isolation or are themselves sick and then there's less people uh, on shift, we know that already they are stretched. You mentioned that we failed from Delta to Omicron uh, with the development of the variant. So what should we do to be proactive before the next variant arrives? And if you're going to suggest that it's uh, some kind of circuit breaker, some kind of temporary mm-hmm. shutdown of society, how many times can we do that? Well, I think as a society, we need to have a discussion And as a society, we need to decide what is more important. It's not a dichotomy. It's not health versus economy. What we've seen is that the countries and provinces that have had their pandemic uh, protocols and measures um, that have been on top of their pandemic uh, response have been able to protect both health and the economy. 
And right now, what we find in British Columbia is that the key in public health is is politics. And um, by doing that, we're not doing the best public health response that we should have and protect our citizens. And once you protect your citizens and you educate them on how to be safe, then you also protect your economy. The most, let me just add one more, one more thing. The most important failure in BC right now has been the failure to acknowledge how the virus is transmitted through the air we share. By failing to acknowledge that, businesses have not been prepared to address ventilation and air filtration. And that is true both in healthcare and in long-term care. In BC, we've had one um, super spreader event after another in long-term care because we fail to address that the air, that the air is the mean of um, transmission of the virus. So right now it would be very important to release the N95s for healthcare workers and for all the citizens to up their mask game. And it would be essential that everywhere we've seen outbreaks, they need to address once and for all ventilation and air filtration in order for us to be safe. And Dr. Filiotro, listening to what you're saying there, it sounds like um, you're not entirely endorsing the leadership and the work done by Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix up to this point. Absolutely not. This is, we have to recognize that this is a complex problem and you need a team of experts and um, people that also have basically that are able to cover your blind spots. We've had with this pandemic what we've seen an equity issue. Um, where people in multi-generational housing with essential workers or even in Whistler, essential workers um, that are 10 or 12 in a house cannot isolate themselves. And that has been a big blind spot of our uh, government and and us being proactive. And it's going to be even compounded now by Omicron. So you need to have people that understand aerosol transmission. Yes, you need public health uh, um, leaders, but they are not enough and they should be, they should not be the only one uh, leading this response. That's an important point. Yes, because right now you need a team of experts. And I'm not an expert in equity, but the people that are, they could have told you a long time ago, hey, go to your communities. Why did we not prepare the North uh, when we knew because of colonization that a lot of the First Nations would understandably be um, reluctant to accept vaccination? Why do we not leverage the places that have done better, the First Nations, like the Niska people, the Haida, where their vaccination uptake is higher? Why did we not learn from them? And then every press briefing I hear are excuses and comparing ourselves to jurisdictions that are not doing well. Let's compare ourselves to Nova Scotia. Dr. Filiatro, thank you so much for being with us this, mo- this uh, afternoon. Thank you.
Well, our technician, uh, Tim French, is playing just the best tune ever for good reason, because while December 25th is an important day for our civilization, not just because St. Nick is visiting us, but it's also an important date for the launching of a $10 billion telescope. It's called the James Webb Telescope. It's going to have the ability to peer back further in time than any other device that has come before it. John Jang, I'm so excited about this. Hubble telescope was amazing. This new telescope is supposed to make the Hubble look like, you know, Bush League amateur business. So that's to put into perspective how incredible this technology is supposed to be. Yeah. And yeah. joining us on the line now to talk about it is Michael Unger. Uh, he's We're just working to get him on the phone right now. He's the program coordinator at HR McMillan Space Center. And this telescope is really, John, uh, it's what they've been looking for, waiting for, for ages. They've tried to launch it mm. in the past um, and no no such luck. It's finally going to be launched. The date's been like pushed uh, several times and it's going to launch on December 25th. And at $10 billion, I mean, can't even imagine how much money $10 billion is. But what's really cool about this, you can uh, check out uh, online, you can look for photos of this thing. It's massive. It's huge. It looks like a giant honeycomb. (laughs) And the kinds of pictures that they're hoping to get from it are just, uh, they're the things I couldn't even imagine. It's a giant honeycomb on like a gray napkin. That's like the best way for me to describe just physically speaking what it all looks like. But again, uh, the type of technology that we're living in the day and age and Uh, This might not impact our day-to-day life, like it's not going to change the way you and I approach work and things like that, but I'm excited what this will mean for the future generations who get to use this data and maybe become the future scientists of tomorrow. Absolutely. And uh, joining us on the line now is Michael Unger from the HR McMillan Space Center. Good afternoon, Michael. Hi, Rashi. Well, I'd say happy holidays to you, but I feel like it's more relevant to say to you happy almost launch day. (laughs) <laughs> That's right, or solstice. I just had that a couple of days ago. Okay, so much is being made about this telescope. Can you tell us why it's such a big deal? Well, really, it's the most ambitious space mission uh, since the Apollo uh, mission of landing humans on the moon. We are sending a telescope uh, further than we ever have before to a place we've never uh, sent a telescope before. It is going to look further into the universe than we've ever looked before. It is a very ambitious. A lot of money has been put into it, but there are some really big payoffs uh, because we'll get to see the beginnings of the universe um, by looking at what we call first light. We're also going to be using it to look at exoplanets, looking for signatures of life potentially around those planets. We're even going to be looking inside of our own solar system at places that we haven't visited in a while, like uh, Uranus and Neptune. Why is it that this telescope is going to be able to show us all that? What's the technology there that's really different? Yeah, so the Hubble Space Telescope, which we most of us are familiar with, we've seen the pictures, the beautiful pictures. Uh, it is a telescope that looks in the visible spectrum. So that's mainly why we get a lot of the pretty pictures, is that we are seeing the colors and the shapes of those uh, distant objects. Uh, but the visible spectrum is very limited um, in what we can see, and is very limited in how far we can see into the universe. So the Hubble, I'm sorry, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be looking in the infrared. So we're going to be uh, looking, you know, uh, 
in that end of the spectrum that will allow us to look uh, further, we'll be able to see the heat sources. It does also have a visible portion um, as part of the James Webb Telescope, so we'll still get some pretty pictures, but it's that ability to see in the, into the infrared um, that makes it very unique. And because it's in space, we don't have to worry about our atmosphere, uh, which is why we try to put telescopes in space. Okay, you mentioned the infrared technology is going to allow us to detect heat sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Can you say more about that? What does that mean? So uh, really, um, a, a lot of information that we get, you know, from the universe comes in in a spectrum, right? We have uh, either you know gamma wave radiation. We also have light, um, but heat is something that we can um, we can detect. Um, that say we're looking through the deep darkness of space. Um, there are there is basically a limit to um, that visible spectrum. So we go further onto that onto that visible spectrum. We get into that infrared. And that's going to be able to see galaxies that formed near the beginning of the universe. So wow. the very, very first galaxies that ever formed um, will be able to detect things that we have never seen before. That's just incredible. So, so can we even predict what we will detect <laughs> or... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where um, just with the Hubble Space Telescope, there was a lot of uh, science goals. And um, beyond those goals were really surprises. And, you know, I think that there is um, there's a little bit of optimism there with a lot of the scientists that once we start pointing this telescope into those reaches and seeing what's out there, perhaps there will be some surprises. And it's always happened in the, previously when we start to embark on these very novel projects that uh, and going and seeing things and going to places that we've never been before. Um, but yes, there is the hope that we will get to see some of those early galaxies. We'll get to um, potentially see some of these exoplanets. Um, exoplanet research is also um, something that's really exciting because with our previous telescopes, we don't really get to look directly at these exoplanets, but um, using James Webb, we'll be able to detect the atmospheres a little bit better using spectroscopy, being able to detect what's inside uh, of those atmospheres of those exoplanets, uh, potentially looking for a planet that could harbor life. Uh, we have the Canadarm, Canadarm2. Uh, Canada helped out with the International Space, Age, uh, Space Station, mm-hmm. pardon me. So what parts and components of this telescope did the Canadian Space Agency play a role in? Because, hey, we all love to cheer for that maple leaf. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Canada um, put in a lot of money into this project and a deal for the Canadian Space Agency, which also means it's a big deal uh, for Canadians because it is a uh, part of our tax dollars. They funded this mission and some of the most integral pieces of the James Webb Space Telescope were built by Canadians. One of them is... um, is the ability to uh, to to hone the the image. So when you're looking through a telescope, um, you're collecting light, and that light is bouncing um, around a couple mirrors until you get to the place where you know if you're looking through with your eye through a telescope to the eyepiece. Now the James Webb Space Telescope also has um, one of those um, one of those mirrors that bounces back three times. But then it needs to be adjusted, and that's like a really crucial piece because um, without that crucial adjustment of uh, adjusting the image, uh, the image may come back blurry. It may come back, you know, not quite aligned properly. Um, it's all incredibly precise engineering, um, and these were uh, there's a bunch of different uh, mechanisms that are on the James Webb Space Telescope. That a particular one is one that Canadians uh, built and contributed to, and was really crucial uh, to the collaboration because it was not just NASA; it was also 
the European Space Agency that helped out on this one. A big group project, if you will. So incredible. We've uh, just got time for one last quick question Mm -hmm. here. So I wonder, do we expect this launch to go as planned? (laughs) At this point, it is a scheduled to launch on uh, on Christmas Day, uh, 4 a.m. Uh, time here on the Pacific uh, time zone. But it is scheduled. It has been delayed a bunch of times. Of course, there's always, you know, uh, room for more delays. They've had actually the latest delays have been weather delays, if you can believe it. Ah. But there's, but there's a, a small window of time uh, that we can launch it because it is going to a very specific place um, further than we'd ever uh, um, sent a telescope before in this place called uh, La Lagrange Point at L2, which is sort of a gravitational well in between the Earth and the Moon. Uh, So it has a very short window of uh, time that we can have for launch. So um, it's scheduled to launch. They're saying it's ready to go. So uh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much for being with us, Michael. Thanks, Rosie. Welcome back to the show, hosted today by John Jang and yours truly, Raji Sohal. Well, we know that our immune system plays an important role in our fight against COVID-19, but our immune system weakens as we age. And so at this time, John, I think a lot of people have on their mind how do seniors protect themselves, but I kind of feel like protecting seniors, it's safe to say that this is something that we should all have to carry on our shoulders. We should all be thinking about at this time of the year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, I don't get to see my grandparents that very often. They are living in Canada after all, but I hear from my friends and I hear about uh, their concerns they have, especially those that have grandparents in long-term care homes. Like there's a lot of concern all throughout the pandemic and it does get exacerbated a bit during the holidays because this is traditionally the time of year everyone's getting together. Exactly. You said it. Well, on the line we have with us, BC Seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie. She joins us to talk more about this. Isabel, happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. Thank you for being with us and thanks for giving us some of your time today. We know that COVID-19 can cause very severe illness in those that are 70 and over, um, that they are even 22 times more likely to die than younger people are from COVID-19. So first off, curious, what role do you think the government could first play in protecting seniors right now? Well, I, I think the government has played a large role in uh, a number of initiatives to protect seniors in BC from COVID-19. And I think most importantly, British Columbians have played a large role in protecting seniors. People care very much about the seniors in their life and the seniors in their community. And we've seen that demonstrated time and again throughout this pandemic, whether it was bringing people groceries and medications or uh, certainly the the significant government initiatives that have been undertaken to protect our seniors. Now uh, we have this uh, unexpected, I think we will uh, all acknowledge, uh, an unprecedented fifth wave. It is going to be extremely challenging. We have vaccines that are highly effective um, that are going to blunt the full impact of this variant and booster shots, which are uh, very effective against this particular variant. And we have accelerated the the booster uh, schedule for people uh, in response to Omicron. So, you know, I think at the the end of the day, um, we all have personal responsibilities around the older adults in our life, making sure we don't visit if we're feeling unwell, Uh, limiting our visits uh, in compliance with public health orders. But I think we all recognize that people are not living in the community are not going to be able to go without seeing their 
their daughter who comes every day to help them with their medications. That's just not feasible. So I think we need to look at, okay, what is the added layer of protection? Right now what's critical is that if we're actively infectious, we don't go and visit our elderly um, relatives. And one of the best ways to ensure that is by taking a rapid test. Okay, so do you want to see more rapid tests made available to senior citizens? Uh, Yes. I mean, I think that we all recognize the logistical and supply issues around everybody that wants a rapid test can get as many as they want. Um, That has a a finite uh, application. What I think we need to focus on, and and the government has focused on to a large extent in terms of facilities that uh, where seniors are living, so care homes, is to deploy these rapid tests. So if you're going to visit your grandmother in the care home, you will receive a rapid test before you're allowed to visit her that day. So you're going to know that you're either infectious, in which case you won't visit, or you're not infectious, in which case you can safely visit. What we need to do, and I think rather quickly, over uh, the next week, uh, if, if not immediately, is get some of the rapid tests. Uh, we've got over 2 million. I think we've got about 1.7 million of the pan-bio ones, which are quite good and easy to use. Get them into the hands of the, that group of people who are visiting particularly vulnerable adults. So, you know, young, healthy, fully vaccinated people their risk of exposure to Omicron is significantly less than older adults, even those who are fully vaccinated. And we're really talking about uh, people over 80, for example, if you had to pick where do you, you know, with your limited supply, where would you start? Um, We know that although uh, case fatality is much higher over 70, it's that much higher again over 80. So if we only have a limited supply, let's focus on getting these rapid tests into the hands of family members who have loved ones in their 80s and 90s. Okay, so like really targeting that group. You mentioned personal responsibility, and I do agree. I think most people take that very seriously. And I don't know if you can answer this, but it's a question I've been hearing around me. What kind of helpful, useful, I guess, persuasive conversation can someone have with younger cavalier people who are sharing space, just unmasked, willy-nilly, visiting multiple households, uh, also spending time with the elderly because they just think that the vaccines are bulletproof and their elderly relatives have the vaccines and they have boosters, so let's just go for it and visit over the holidays. Well, that, that uh, is exactly if they took a rapid test before they visited their you know, 90-year-old grandmother, they would know if they were infectious or not. But I think one of the messages, you know, we have to remember, you, you can't help but look at our vaccination record to realize overwhelmingly British Columbians do the right thing. They stepped up, they got vaccinated, they got vaccinated again, and they're stepping up again for the booster shots. And they're wearing the masks uh, in the public spaces where they are supposed to. Most are adhering to the uh, gathering limits. Uh, some, some aren't, but I, I do believe most are. The message to those who are more cavalier, as you describe it, is simply if you want to get back to being able to go to the bar because it's opened uh, or being able to go to your hockey games at Canada Place, you have to help out here because we're not going to the, the our ability to get back to that sooner 
is going to be based on everybody following the orders that they have to they have to follow. And as bad as we think it is, it was worse last Christmas. Uh, people will recall last Christmas there was no visiting, um, and the visiting in long-term care was extremely, extremely restricted. So because of the vaccine and because of rapid tests, we have an ability to have a, a ever so slightly greater recognition of the need to get together with small groups during this uh, Omicron wave. And if we just add a little bit, you know, common sense measure, um, I think that we will get through this as safely as possible. I mean, we what we want to prevent is obviously serious illness, hospitalizations, and death. And uh, the best way to do that is everybody get there, obviously get vaccinated. Overwhelmingly, most people are. Get your booster shot as soon as you're able to get it. Uh, follow the, the uh, limit restrictions on personal gatherings. And if you aren't feeling well, stay home. And if you need to get uh, a test for COVID, please get that test and follow the public health guidance. Thanks for being with us uh, this afternoon, Isabel. My pleasure and uh, best of the season to you and to all of the listeners.